Hello, friends. It's another Alf Hibonus bonus from Alf Hibunga Bunga. It's Wednesday, the 20th of October. This is Alex Hoichili. I'm with uh, Phil Cunliffe and George Hoare. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. How are we interesting doing? new pronunciation of your name. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that as well. What did I wow, say? It's pretty, it was pretty good. And it's Hoichili. Hoichili. I don't know. Isn't it? I mean, it's your prerogative. It's your name. It, yeah, it's your name, but you keep on mispronouncing. I mean, it's, it's more like Hokuli, but I just change it according to. I don't know. I, I thought it's Hokuli, no? Isn't it? Whatever. Is Whatever. I'm, I'm not. I'm not like anal about this. I think right. it's. It shows a deep Ho- insecurity Hoax. to correct people if they mispronounce your name. You should just go I'll go with, with Hokuli. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I've heard. I've had broccoli, Hercules. Uh, the alternate ends of the spectrum. I'd, I'd prefer Hercules to broccoli, but anyway, enough about this. Uh, George, you're you're very cheery, obviously today. Had your had your holiday cancelled. Uh, yes, setting. thank you for bringing that up. I, I appreciate you uh, <coughs> mentioning that. So yeah, now I'm in a. I'm, I think I'm in the right mood. I'm I'm often too too kind with listeners' questions, and now I can be I can be critical and um and say what I really think. No, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm joking. It was, yeah, not, not great, but um, you know, that's good. It's, it's, I can just spend more time with you guys. Yeah, George, George is looking and, for, for. And for, if for... listeners have any suggestions of where George should go on holiday, yeah. please do yeah, send please, them in. Please mail in and say where George should go. Uh, we could actually make it a kind of a competition where we can dispatch George for his holiday if we can get him on holiday before the end of 2021 and before the imminent new lockdown, which seems to be coming our way in the UK. Oof. Well, we'll be talking about that uh, in just a bit, amongst other things. Uh, if you are not familiar with the concept of our Alpha Bonus Bonus episodes, it's where we take your questions, comments, and criticisms that we've received over the past two months or so, posted on Patreon or sent by message, uh, and uh, and we respond to them and we deal with them and we deal with them, I guess, in reverse order. So starting with the oldest one, uh, moving towards the newest one. So that's how this works. Uh, if you're new to us and if you're new to us, uh, a welcome again. We've had a lot of new people uh, recently. And so it's good to see you and uh, good for you to hear us, I guess. I mean, if that's, that's just self-congratulatory. That's terrible. Anyway, n- very nice of you to join us. Let's get started. Uh, so the first one uh, is the Reading Club, uh, Psychoanalysis and the Spirit of Capitalism from the 21st of August. Uh, if you haven't heard that because you don't have access to it, that's, uh, you know, you have to pay $10 a month for that. Um, but uh, if you did hear it, and hopefully you, you will get something out of uh, our responses to, to the questions and comments. So to get started, uh, Ben says, the passive aggression gives the vibe of a realistic socialist organization. So immersive. I guess that's a comment on the vibe of the episode. I, I don't yeah, know thanks, Ben. That's that's all we're going for. So it's nice to yeah. get. Nice to see that we're it's working out. Yeah. Thanks for your support, uh, comrade. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, I hope you further explore this idea of alienation driving a desire for charismatic leaders, or however you would say. It's interesting. Sounds prescient. Yeah. I think uh, I think there is something in that um, that maybe atomization does drive a, a, a desire for um, for connection with 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 a leader through a direct connection, which is something that we've explored in our discussions of populism. I don't know if you guys have anything to add to that. Um, no, I just think it's that disintermediation. You know, people people can't be bothered with with any solutions to alienation. They just want a shortcut. The shortcut is a charismatic leader. Bam. Indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah, speaking of shortcut to alienation, I just, uh, I saw that seeing this thing about the Netflix workers strike today, which I tweeted something about, which is like, comes back to the point that we discussed once on a three articles a little while ago about PMC unions, 
where they're outraged because of Dave Chappelle's comedy show where he makes supposedly negative comments about trans people. And it's like, oh, Jesus, Jesus, like, Christ. you know, that that's one where they're trying to overcome, like as if, as if what Dave Chappelle says is somehow a reflection of their inner soul and beliefs. It's like, no, you're just working at Netflix. Who cares? Fight for better pay and conditions. But like this sorry. kind of censorious. Sorry, I've, to- I've, I've missed this. Are the Netflix workers striking because they don't like the content of Dave Chappelle's yeah. most yeah. recent special? Exactly. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, in, that's interesting. Um, having seen it, I'm, I'm quite surprised by that. Or maybe not surprised, but yeah. Uh, don't, I, don't be surprised. Well, yeah. I, yeah, nothing, anyway. should, nothing should surprise anymore. But anyway, let's move on to our to the next. Yeah. Um, just, but, but anyway, just, just a note there because we might come back to this question of PMC unions because um, it is quite interesting and it doesn't seem to be going away um, as a as a yeah kind of tricky sort of issue. Anyway, uh, next comment is from Eli. This might be a bit hard sign for you guys, but maybe read Mark Solm's "The Hidden Spring." Attempts to give a materialist theory of subjectivity are slowly coming back into style. Well, that's good to hear. I'm not familiar with that book, but. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm also not a hard sci guy, but uh... it's hard sci like sci fi, but the harder. It's more three body problem than June. I haven't read either of those books, so I don't know if that's appropriate. But... <laughs> yeah, let, let's move on so we don't uh, expose ourselves talking about things we don't know. Um, so this is a really interesting comment from Ran Heilbrunn, and I read it uh, in full. If you bear with me. Uh, he loves the continuous engagement with psychoanalysis that we're doing on this podcast. It really adds an interesting dimension to it. I agree with George. I mean, well, actually, no, this must be wrong. I'm sorry. He agrees with George. Uh, George is doing that. He says he agrees with George. Make clear who's talking. Yeah, here. yeah. Ran Halbrun agrees with George that there are some major discontinu- discontinuities between post-1960s spirit of capitalism and the current moment. And I think the clearest expression of this has to do with sex. The contractual, regulatory, sensorial sex culture of the Me Too era represents a departure from, and perhaps a rejection of, everything psychoanalysis taught us about sex. This new sexual landscape, as the analyst Daniel Knaff recently put it, denies the idea that desiring the forbidden is inherent to sex, that aggression and sexual drives are interconnected, and that there is an irreducible tension between the sexual realm and the norms of civilized society. The sexual revolution of the 1960s tried to overcome these issues by celebrating release, and empowering the id, while the sexual revolution of the 21st century emphasizes the superego and its ability to generate conformity and shame. Both revolutions are similar in their collapse of the boundaries between public and private life, and in their futile efforts to resolve the ambiguities resulting from us both being sexually driven creatures and socially functioning adults, but their ways to achieve this goal are fundamentally different, i.e. those of the 60s and those of today. I think that's great. I don't disagree with that at all. I think it's fascinating. Any other comment? It is. It's it's uh, it's a kind of fantastically interesting comment. I suppose I don't know that it's really driven. Is it really driven by the superego? Um, I guess today, like uh, sexual morality, I guess it is. I mean, I yeah. guess that's the idea that you're you the but the superego rather than kind of being prim and restrained is um, that people are expected to be. Um, hedonistic, self-interested, um, and essentially encouraged to be kind of, you know, uh, constantly swiping right on Tinder or whatever it is, and polyamorous and kind of explore their sexuality and identity, blah, blah, blah. But this is but this is not so much about that aspect of it, I, I'm reading between the lines, but more about the sort of me too, like every sexual interaction is prone to predation and uh, abuse yeah. and aggression and so on. And it's typical, actually, because I mean, what the superego does is convert the aggression into, uh, into shame, you know, um, and so 
I think that's what's happening kind of at a social level as well. And those who kind of empower themselves as the social, mm-hmm. social super ego and arbiter of what's, uh, of what's allowed. And yeah. And, and the, the putting into question of the, of people's desire, right. That desire is complex. That doesn't mean that if you desire something, you should go out and take it <laughs> like some of these kind of the maddest ends of men's rights activists believe. And so, and, and pick up artists and so on, um, which is an issue we're going to come back to actually. So there's a comment about this, but uh, it does mean recognizing the complexity of human desires and that sex is sometimes complicated, has elements of violence and aggression all combined in there. And that's something that you're not even allowed to admit nowadays, I think. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say that it's kind of interesting how the two of you feel able to agree with somebody who agrees with me, but not to agree with me directly. So there's something in that, but um, I don't quite know what it is. And it's a, it's a, a, yeah, a really interesting comment and much more articulate than obviously I was in that episode. Perhaps that's why we agree with it. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, let's, let, let's move on. Um, so the next one is Unlocking the Lockdown Left featuring Galaxy Brain, a.k.a. Um, Alex Guttentag. Um, episode 211. Episode 211, uh, which was from, recorded on the 24th of August. There was a lot of engagement on this, unsurprisingly, because uh, lockdowns and general responses to the pandemic are obviously still extremely hot issues and uh, have split people who see very much eye to eye on a range of political issues, but on this, they they diverge. So um, let's, uh, let's go through them. So a couple of positive comments. Firstly, from Sensible Captain. Firstly, schools in California were apparently very worried about kids missing out on education during the teacher's strike, but not during the COVID lockdown. That says it all, really. Uh, thanks for this interview, Alex's voice is important. Uh, Nigel B. Opinion says he's so glad that we did this episode. Um, Alex G. Alex Gutentag can probably claim to have been one of the most indispensable public intellectuals of the pandemic, uh, clearly making the case for less is more, a less, less state action is better. Um, and she put more thought into her tweets than many well-paid columnists did. What Great interview by Phil and great discussion by the whole team. Jennifer Baldwin says, excellent guest on Lockdown Left. Uh, I've been disgusted throughout, disgusted throughout that the left has absolutely refused to acknowledge from the beginning that we have a ruling class more than capable of ruling. And this includes the ability to manufacture crises. The lockdowns were one element in an overt attack on the working class, who obviously just carried on working. This came, this may come as a shock, but capitalists aren't, aren't that bothered about our health. Um, I'm going to just take the opportunity to respond to that before I bring in some of the other comments, most of which are then negative. Um I don't agree with that because I think what this, what the lockdowns show and the kind of ruling classes response to COVID shows is that they're not really capable of ruling. I mean, they're all emergency after the fact cobbled together responses and which follow their instinct maybe for social control, but not really an attempt to manufacture a crisis. I think that imputes way too much sort of planning and, and, and foresight into, into what they've done. Thoughts? I yeah I'm I'm I think at first the uh, the kind of analysis that I would give was or did give was about essentially like a, a failure a political failure failure in the state's capacity to solve this problem but I think it became clearer that if the ruling class can't can't govern or can't rule it certainly can still promote its its interest and there is a as a I'm, I'm starting to, to to be more and more convinced by there is an element of restoration of 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 ruling class power and dominance in over the course of. But the, did did the they lose the power? Pandemics. Well, there was a threat. I think there was a threat. There was a fail. There was a series of 
there was a failed democratic revolution in, in Brexit. There was a series of threats around 2016, a little bit before, and those have been decisively demobilized or more or less. So, yeah, I think it's it's. It, I think it was a very good a very good interview, and it was good that it 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 um spurred um just engagement, both positive and negative. But certainly, you know, was was made made me think, which is which is good. And I do I do think that element of there has to be a negative explanation, like the political void meant that certain solutions were the only ones that were possible, but also a positive explanation. There was a class project here and what did it look like and what did it further in the lockdowns and the response to COVID days. Um, so I'll take on the, 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 next, the next couple of questions because this, uh, this whole conversation isn't, isn't done, at least on this topic. Uh, Carson H. says, Alex's perspective, not mine, the Alex, our interviewee, uh, Alex's perspective as a teacher of working class kids is valuable, but going by her Twitter, it does seem like she's willing to flirt with some pretty boomer-brained notions when it comes to vaccines. Have to disagree with the use of boomer there. But anyway, don't get me wrong. I also oppose the indefinite extension of COVID-related restrictions, masking, distancing, etc. once there has been a recently high uptake of shots in a given place. There are a disturbing number of people, especially among the PMC, who seem to be in favor of such an extension. If you're downplaying the importance of vaccines, though, it's back to choosing between just isolate all the old or sick people forever and outright denialism. Um, I well, strongly I mean, agree with that, but go ahead, Phil. Uh, well, I mean, it, but it, it's not for us to speak on Alex's behalf, right? No, no, but just the general issues brought up by that. Well, it's the, I mean, it depends on, you know, how far you think that she's downplaying the importance of vaccines. I don't think Alex does. I think she downplays the, she certainly is um, hostile and skeptical to vaccine mandates, um, you know, hostility that I share. Um, and, you know, she, I think there are, you know, she draws attention to um, reasons for vaccine hesitancy, um, you know, which I don't think are irrational in the current context, you know. Um, I mean, I'm vaccinated and I'd encourage people, you know, particularly vulnerable people to get vaccinated, those who I know personally and so on. But, um, you know, I, I don't think it's, ir it's irrational to be vaccine hesitant in the current context and I, and Alex draws attention to that so, but you know ultimately I mean like I say we can't really speak on her behalf um, because it comes to the question of how far the how far you think that she's downplaying the importance of vaccines I, I no don't sure but I think there's a general there's a, a, a what I I guess what I'm what I'm trying to draw out from this I guess is that there are certain people who have been initially skeptical of lockdown and I was skeptical from the start of of lockdowns as a policy and but who whose skepticism about everything the state does in response to COVID has led them even to be skeptical of vaccinations and you know talk up the risks uh, uh, presented by vaccines. And I think that's completely wrongheaded, especially if you're going to minimize the risks that COVID posed to the general population, and i.e. to be uh, to, to i.e. be not very risk averse, to then okay. suddenly be super risk averse about vaccines seems to me completely inconsistent. No, I agree. But like I say, I mean, there's a limit to how much we can kind of um, hook this, hook that discussion on on Alex, given that she's no, not no, here no, to sure, sure, sure. speak but for herself. Is... And it's based, like I say, on a judgment about how far you think she's doing that on our Twitter. So I think, the, I think the, the major point is that you should, like people should be able to make their own mind up over vaccines. And like, if you have a look at the the data it's as far as i interpret it it's it is 
it's not a like it's it's a quickly developed vaccine you can you could make a case that there are there are some potential dangers here you just really don't know and if that means that somebody doesn't want to get vaccinated then you shouldn't coerce them like i'd say particularly what's happening it's yeah i mean i tend to agree with that but particularly young you know people who are healthy not vulnerable um are still very unlikely um you know still very unlikely to die as a result of the as a result of the disease so you know i i mean i understand vaccine hesitancy um for the reasons for the reasons that george mentioned but also the uh, attempt to kind of drive vaccines through mandates and to make it coercive effectively is uh, kind of you know uh, deeply depressing at once deeply depressing and utterly predictable from the start of lockdown I actually don't have, I mean, you know, I, I don't have a much of a principled problem with vaccine mandates. There's, we accept vaccine mandates. At most, well, at least half the countries in the world, if not more, have mandatory vaccines for children for, for a range of diseases. Like yeah, for MMR children for certain whatever. kinds of diseases there, right? Yeah. But not for diseases, not for this, not for a disease like COVID. So, and also it's My mandatory bad. vaccination for school kids, which is different from mandatory vaccination for adults. Right, particularly making access to public services or access to work. I I, I, I totally I totally disagree with the conditionality. That's where I, I really draw the line. I hate the vaccine. That's a mandate. P- passports, right? I'd rather that's just that's a mandate. That is yeah, a but, mandate. but it's this kind of conditional at, uh, treatment of it. So um, condition, you know, where public space suddenly becomes something where you have to show and prove that you're vaccinated rather than just you know mandating yeah, that's people a, to be that vaccinated. That is the word. That is the man. That is the man. That is the form that it is taking. Well, and I mean, yes, I agree, and I disagree with the form that it's taking. Anyway, let's move. Let's move on. Um, feedback says this is easily one of the best podcasts out there. But I am. Am I the only one who felt as though this interviewee was a charlatan? How can anyone read these tweets of hers and still take her seriously? Uh, Maximum Ben says, how can three people discuss the stifling effect lockdown had on organizing while completely ignoring that the largest organized protest in U.S. history happened during lockdown? 2020 wasn't that long ago, but it seemed like you've all forgotten what happened last year. BLM wasn't mentioned once when discussing organizing under lockdown. Baffling. This whole interview was a mess of misinformation and ridiculous mischaracterizations of extremely recent history. It goes on to say that criticizing trust in our expert class and scientific and medical institutions completely ignores the fact that the medical experts were ignored by policymakers who tried to find a balance with capital interests and virtually all lockdowns were later and lighter than was recommended, i.e., um, you know, they didn't, with the, the, whole, the whole problem is that they didn't follow what experts uh, mandated. Uh, and then uh, this, I'm kind of skipping a little bit because it's a long comment, but uh, they can conclude by saying Alex is perfect is a perfect example of why an expert class is valuable. Her everyone is capable of doing their own research narrative is always the argument made by charlatans who use cherry picked data, mischaracterizations, and in, miscase, and in many cases lie to argue an opinion people want an excuse to believe. If I wanted to listen to an unqualified science denialist and be platformed with zero fact checking and total credulity, I'd listen to Joe Rogan. Uh, in response to this, just, just, to bring, just to bring this in, uh, Nick Thompson says in response to that, kept waiting for what alternative lockdowns she was going to propose. Then at the very end of the episode, herd immunity. Wasn't that a complete disaster in the UK? Shall we discuss this? Yeah. So the point about BLM is um, well made in as much as I think there were clear aspects of the, um, the rioting and the protests associated with BLM that were... Um, you know, de facto, I mean, there's no way around it, but that they were, to some degree, I think you have to treat them as protests against lockdown. 
in the sense that even if, I mean, the issue obviously was police violence, um, but at the same time, it's difficult to explain the intensity and breadth of those protests across the US. If you didn't have reference to the fact that people, you know, had been people were in lockdown, people had been perhaps been laid off from their jobs or the great deal of economic uncertainty under furlough. Um, so, I mean, there was all sorts of reasons, I think, that the ways in which lockdown directly fed in to those protests. On the flip side, though, they received such tremendous um, validation from so many elite institutions. Yeah. Um, and this was the hypocrisy, you know, that was pointed out by many commentators at the time that all you know suddenly um you know all sorts of people who the week before had been insisting that um gathering you know large gatherings were equivalent to you know mass murder and um by virtue of spreading the virus suddenly flipped the following week and saying that it was the virtuous thing to do was to um attend this protest and that you know as if as if the virus couldn't um wouldn't infect you if you were you know sufficiently virtuous with respect to um questions of racial politics in the US. So we, um, you know, we could have talked about it more, no doubt, we should have talked about it. But I don't think it, I don't think the way in which the politics of BLM played out is sufficient to undercut uh, the points that Alex was making. I would say it's almost, it was almost the kind of the exception that proved the rule in the sense of having like this is the exceptional circumstance in which organizing is is allowed. I mean, this is not to take away from Maximum Ben's um, point that we should have discussed it because it is an important it is an important uh, element of the story that that there was this explosion of like people like going out onto the streets and it you know it's it's absolutely not nothing. Um, I think though the the points around kind of criticizing um alex uh, around sorry alex alex g not alex uh hohuli um around this idea of why the expert class is is valuable everyone is capable of doing their own research like that is an important that is an important point to to, to defend like everyone is is capable yeah. of rationally deciding like if and, you treat people and... like if you treat people like children that's 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 get them behaving like end. children yeah well, no, you just like you then you know what's good for them. Um, and that's and that isn't that and, isn't that isn't good. And indeed, I mean, Al, you know, Alex, uh, Alex Gutentag has never claimed to be anything more than, um, you know, than uh, a teacher um, who has um, her, who's put forward her views, you know, and made her arguments, which obviously you're free to agree with or disagree. with. Absolutely. And, um, and, and, and so. what was discussed by her in, in the interview was precisely this question of education, and the harmful effect on it, not kind of some broad approach to epidemiology for example so yeah and the hypocrisy involved in terms of that you know institutions and commentators who had opposed striking um suddenly supported barring children from education despite the extraordinarily low risk that children faced um during the covid pandemic yeah but but maximum ben makes another another valid point as well i think it's i think it was a good you have to you have to concede when you when you have a good kind of critical comment even if you disagree with it um that this idea that medical experts were ignored by policymakers who tried to find a balance and virtually all lockdowns were later in life than was recommended i mean i i would probably take issue with this or not so much take issue with saying like the the medical experts and that that body of opinion which coalesced around an extremely um severe um policy prescription that was not the only like that was not the only 
uh, evidence-based, even on the terms of like being evidence-based policy, that was not the only option that was available. And I think actually the the costs of that, even the lockdowns that we did have, I mean, they're going to be quite staggering, I think. We'll, we will we'll come to find this. And if they'd been sooner and harder than was recommended, uh, than, than, sorry, as soon and as hard as recommended, not, not later and lighter, then it would have been even more costly. And I think that's a, you know, this is a point that I think will undermine um, trust in, exp- in, in experts because I think these the costs of, of all of the delayed medical treatments of various sorts, the kind of the social, like the difficult to measure social and moral costs of lockdowns, these will only become apparent in the in the medium term. I think it was an extremely damaging um, policy and to say that it was, you know, it was justified by expertise. If that was the case or is the case, then I think that will just undermine uh, trust in that expertise. So uh, to move on, because we've got more questions on this, uh, Alex Haggis, uh, this is uh, yet another Alex, but this one probably with the best surname of all. So the failed, the, uh, the, the, the cook sheep stomach version of Alex, uh, have to give props to them, say uh, it's interesting how the fight over schools last year became a proxy war for whether teachers were to be conceived as part of the professional class. Since teachers as a group are conceived variously as either part of the service economy and should be at work with the essential workers or is more a part of the PMC and thus should be in the Grubhub stay home crowd, um, which I think is, which is kind of interesting, I guess. Um, though I think that kind of, to a certain extent, misses the point because it shouldn't, the whole problem, well, one of the problems with the lockdown is this division between those who should be at work and those who shouldn't be at work. I mean, uh, that, that at yeah. least is, is one of the inconsistencies of the policy. And I think, I mean, you know, I think the closing down of education remains one of the most damning indictments of the policy as a whole. Yeah. So, you know, some kind, I, I mean, I still believe I'm a lockdown skeptic, but I still think obviously some kinds of public restrictions were inevitable, particularly in the early days of the pandemic. But the fact that collectively as societies and the wealthiest, most technologically sophisticated societies in human history decided that they were unable to maintain education for their children in the circumstances of a virus that very early on was known to be most uh, lethal for the elderly rather than for the young. That seems to me, you know, a terrible, terrible indictment of um, the functioning of contemporary capitalism and that teachers, the fact, you know, and that again, this goes back to the PMC union question, but that, that so many um, teachers uh, and their representative, their organized representatives were complicit in this, I think is also um, a terrible well, indictment. They weren't, they weren't just complicit. I think they were probably some of the most vocal advocates for um, greater restrictions. And yeah. I think that's, that's, I mean, you can you can kind of get on your on your moral high horse and say, you know, where is the vocation of teaching gone? And, you know, where are all these these teachers willing to to kind of to do something good and to educate the youth and all this sort of thing? Um, but I think the reality is that that probably the, the way that Alex Haggis frames it in terms of a kind of, you know, a class analysis and what and where do they sit that probably explains a little bit more than a loss of faith in the um the profession yeah. as a as a as vocation though i think it, well, well indeed I but mean, i think the, i mean it would have been a quintessentially kind of bourgeois vocational outlook in earlier generations that they would have understood their role in kind of providing a public you know a public um that it was a public uh good and that requires you know certain kind of basic tasks of socialization 
which with children obviously you know can't be done online so even with I think, I think what I was going to say was I mean with the essential workers thing you know I mean I th there were ways around the there were ways around the problem they could have recruited more assistants they could have given decided to give teachers hazard pay right um, you know they could have allowed elderly or vulnerable teachers obviously to shield and sought to yeah. replace them they could have you know kind of done all sorts of things to um to kind of dampen down um, the spread in schools wherever possible with the right investment and with the will to do it but there was instead lockdown you know it was decided to lock down education as well and so i you know i think i mean there's no way all of these questions about what was you know kind of the right thing to do in hindsight um, as if it was a purely uh, technical question that could be answered with maximum efficiency, misses the point that it was always going to be refracted through existing political and social institutions. And like I say, the, f the way it played out in education, I think, indicates just how terrible the overall policy response was. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, it, though, to explain it, I guess, or what underlies it a bit is the emphasis on protection and the sort of duty of care that is so emphasized in teaching, which is not unimportant. It is a part of teaching. I mean, it, it, but I think the overemphasis of that in ex, at, at the expense of so many of the other duties of teachers, well, but particularly education. But teachers being protected from the people they're supposed to teach. Yeah, well, know, yes, but also, but also, but also, protecting the the, but also protecting the kids, right? I mean, so... This whole idea that everybody here very, is at danger. Well, yeah, but I mean, the kids, I mean, this was certainly, um, and it's a point I've made before on the podcast, but I mean, that was certainly the dynamic at work in higher education, that higher education, particularly in the higher education union in the UK, the UCU ended up treating students, you know, college students, university students, as if they were nothing but disease carriers, plague carriers, lepers, um, and that we couldn't, you know, that they demanded that we not be in this presence of our own students because they were so dangerous to us simply by virtue of being in the same space and we're talking about lecture halls and seminar rooms you know we're not talking about um you know cramped kind of conditions or something so talk about an unsafe space well indeed right so i mean i think you know there's that politics of protection and the duty of care taken to this irrational extreme Right. So um, let's just grab the last uh, couple of things on this, because there's obviously a lot about uh, COVID and lockdowns and so on. Um, Daniel L says, of course, lockdown is indicative of state failure to deal with the pandemic in other ways. But given how much had been hollowed out, e.g., for example, in Australia, there was less ICU coverage per person than in the 1970s. And indeed, this is a case uh, in many different places. How could it possibly have been ramped up to deal with the surge in cases? Uh, so it gives an example of Sydney of, of going from zero cases to 800 in eight weeks. Elective surgery was canceled in public hospitals a few weeks ago and last week also canceled in private hospitals as private doctors have been directed to work in the public system. What's the alternative to lockdown in this scenario where the state literally doesn't have the capacity to deal with radical, regular medical issues eight weeks into a COVID outbreak and with vaccine rates still low? Um, so I, I think that's a, a, a important. I'm going to take another couple of questions first, and then we can deal them all with all of them together. Uh, Eli says, looking in from the outside, that is to say from the United States, he bog boggles his mind that such well-organized countries such as Australia and New Zealand still have such low vaccination rates. 
How have you been unable to get ahead of the virus now that vaccines have been available for many months? And finally, a message from AM, um, Bunga fan and infectious diseases doctor from Melbourne here. I once sent you a slightly grumpy comment about your COVID coverage and enjoyed your slightly grumpy reply on bonus bonus. Uh, I still think your COVID lockdown discussions would be stronger and your critiques more specific if you could factor in some of the some of some understanding of the medical and healthcare issues at hand. I'm obviously biased, but I think having a sense of what managing COVID in a public healthcare system actually looks like for patients and for society as a whole is, a ne- is necessary to any meaningful analysis on the topic. Governments have also taken very different approaches to lockdown, and the impact has obviously not been the same everywhere. Australia is a case in point here. Most parts of the country have had almost no COVID and spent almost no time in lockdown. Perhaps you have doctor colleagues or friends who have discussed this with you already, but I'd happy, happily talk to us about it. Um, so, uh, guys, we respond to, uh, well, to any of these, take, take, take your pick. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the question about how to, you know, if we accept that lockdown is partly an artifact of um, hollowed out public capacity, then how do you, and this is true across the developed world, then how do you deal with it? Um, and I think, I mean, I suppose one part of it is, uh, again, you expand capacity as quickly as you can. I mean, I'd say you also invest in vaccines, which was done, but also that you expand capacity um, and that that can be done, I think. Um, at least belatedly, it was shown in the case of um, the UK, where you had um, the so-called Nightingale hospitals, where you had so enormous expansion of emergency capacity. And they were eventually closed down, though, because they didn't have the staff for them. Um, but the technical capacity to expand the number of, um, you know, uh, emergency kind of um, supplies available in terms of being able to take in sick people was there. And I imagine it would be similar if, you know, the resources were found in the in the in um, other developed countries as well. Um, obviously, that still gives you the question of how do you deal with staff? And that I think, again, was partly shown some of that was shown in the subsequently with the um, kind of vaccine volunteers that came up once the vaccine was developed. Um, or see, or um, if you think about actually, you know, if they could have recruited en masse, say, to help at the in the hospitals with administration, with providing extra cleaning services, given the um, new kind of hygiene standards that had to be rolled out, including the army. Um, and they did some of this as well, right? Recruiting kind of retired doctors, bringing in frontline personnel who would um uh, doctors who are still in university and training, all of that. I think there were options to expand capacity. Yeah, I, I think, think I, my my response to Daniela would be, um, yeah, I mean the 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 fact that all of these things are still like a year, a year and a half into the pandemic, still sort of more or less problems, just shows the depth of the the hollowing out of the of the state. I mean, and that and that and that, and the capacities to deal with with this sort of thing. Um, and that's, you know, I think it, it, it is important to get your head around that, like how just the only response was just demobilize everybody, like it, even in the face of or, or the, sorry, the dominant response was that even as Phil has said that there were some signs that there could have been increased um, technical capacity, but there was no democratic power of mobilizing people and getting them into any sort of project that could have actually seen that Um seen that through i think to just to <clears throat> respond to the to the um um to am's doctor, message yeah. yeah 
people have had enough of of experts infectious diseases doctor no no not my not <laughs> i don't have any friends who are phil and i are shaking doctors. our heads this is yeah they're, they're, that is they're, such you know, a terrible to, terrible response George. I, I actually suspect i i think actually the co- the pandemic actually in some ways is ironically a restatement of the importance of of scientific expertise and for open discussion about it and but what's precisely what we've had is no expertise and just politicization of it i mean so the and the, and the prostitution of of expertise and the 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 cleaving of it to uh, to political imperatives without open discussion. So the the problem is that if something gets politically decided what? upon look, based would, on expertise, I mean, I would, so it, it, I would it invite, becomes firewalled from discussion. So okay, that, so but look, I would so I'd invite AM to you know I mean obviously if dissatisfied respond further, but it seems to me like you know so in Australia, you've had severe lockdowns in some places, but also now that you still have rolling lockdowns that you have such. Um, significant kind of vaccine skepticism and vaccine hesitancy um, that the zero lockdown policy seems to me to be kind of utterly irrational given that it's a you know now zero covid yeah sorry zero covid that we're now kind of nearly two years into a global pandemic a zero covid strategy if you want to main you know be kind of um uh functioning modern country seems so irrational and unsustainable and you know at the same time they kept out seven i mean is it seventy thousand? was the figure i saw australian citizens yeah, have been I... kept outside of australia and refused you know um have been disbarred from going back deprived of some of the most you know fundamental kind of rights as a citizen of that state those those seem to me to be terrible costs um so you know with all due yeah. with all due deference to um to the expertise of an you know of an infectious diseases doctor in public health and please you know i mean come back with you know come back uh, and um with your points but um it doesn't seem to me that australia can be held aloft as a successful model of dealing with covid so my 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 response was i think you both thought it was a, a joke but actually it was serious in to the extent that i just think that whatever the um i just think anybody with with uh, any sort of medical or healthcare or public healthcare expertise like there is going to be i i really think a massive de- decrease in trust of belief of um of people in this in this area i I think people you know whether they had had enough of experts previously i think there is a there is a case now of like well if this was the best response that could have been mustered to this um to this virus then that is really undermines this whole kind of this whole expert this whole expert class but that's but that's um, but that's precisely the point isn't it that that's why you know science as an open-ended enterprise requires debate and and you know open and frank debate and that's what you haven't had and that's also why you've had you know you're, you're resulting in such a you know growing mistrust of of expertise um but what's, but I still what's think the solution to that is it is it to have is it to have more open and, and more frank discussion well i just i just feel like my 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 trust in the in in the the public sphere to be able to deliver that is is much reduced um so i mean but that is but then but that leaves but that leaves you with very that leaves you with very little because who do you trust then i mean there's you know there are technical problems that need resolution that can't just be brushed away with let's just do what the democratic will says because there is no democratic will and and even that democratic will is informed by debate on technical issues so there's no evading the need for actual technical expertise to feed into public debate 
and and will formation. Well, I think it's. I think I would move to more towards a position where that technique, the technical aspects of that are relatively less important and the democratic aspects are relatively more important. And so it's like, well, the expert class says this. So, you know, so what? This is the sort of situation you get into, um, continual lockdowns and, you know, 18 months into it. If you listen to the expert class, I'd rather, you know, <laughs> rather try a different tack. I don't really know what that is. But... but I mean, that's difficult because if we're at the same time, and this is a foreshadowing an episode that's coming out shortly about nuclear power, you know, there you want one, the state to take deliberate action. You don't want the state to do nothing. You want, and you want it to be informed by expertise about what, you know, what the, about basically being able to build huge fucking nuclear plants, right? And so you need expert. I don't think there's, there's a way of evading that. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe um, maybe so, I'm just being a bit in, incoherent after my after my fucking holiday was cancelled. I just don't want I don't want to listen to anybody. I I, I understand I the frustration. Nothing like being told that like you can't do kind of basic things of like in your leisure time um, because of whatever fucking COVID. It is incredibly frustrating. Um, right, two one two. That's the num- number of the article. Three articles. Two one two. Yeah, what, not that, not that. Uh, three articles, middle class anxieties, which we recorded on uh, 31st of August, which had some stuff about climate, about China, about uh, female dating strategy as well. So let's go through these. Um, pure and special Jacob Stanley. I assume this is a, a comment, a, a name of a username. Why are you so mean to George? Hashtag team George. Um, and uh, George, who has compiled these questions, uh, says that 10 people liked this comment. Whereas a different comment about Phil being very handsome received only one like. Uh, <laughs> as 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 always, I put my faith in the people to 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 display their democratic will, and that, I've been I've been rewarded. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what that's called demagoguery, where you just cherry yeah. pick whoever what uh, democracy and the people actually are. Yeah, that isn't actually democracy, George. Um, yeah, that's says say the anti democrats, and I should say pure and special was um was an editorial insertion. Oh, I don't what? think this is somebody's name, but I, I just think it was just such a pure and special comment. I'm not letting you do. I mean, thank you for doing this because I was late, and therefore George had to do it. But um, I'm I'm going to make sure to be the one compiling these next time. Um, Alex Dale added, "It's because you miss 100 of the opportunities to mean to me be mean to George. You don't take this is because Phil and I took the piss out of George for saying you miss 100." of shots you don't take in a random comment and uh but bernhard pickle pure pickle <laughs> sorry Bern, uh offers his critical support to uh to george's lame jokes uh, nathan beasley says that uh our discussion about the ccp's gaming ban was one of the most insightful discussions he's heard great stuff guys well thank you that's uh that's very nice to hear um stuff on climate mf mage says george watching regional detective dramas is so on brand i love it on a more serious note would love to hear a bunga discussion on climate politics this episode sort of circled around the concept of a quote-unquote just transition then there's been some comments about the politics of fear regarding the climate and extractivism discourse um and so on uh well we as i said as i just recently said we are having an episode about nuclear power uh coming out uh in a in a week i think it'll be coming out a week after this episode that you're listening to right now uh and we've recorded stuff on this before with lee phillips uh two or three episodes and i recommend you go check that out but of course we will come back to it it also covers the next comment from gabo goff who says don't think your take on wind and nuclear is quite that perspective cost of nuclear is incredibly high and the planned nuclear plant in england has blown its budget multiple times with large enough grid wind is fairly reliable and can be up to 80 percent of energy supply um 
So this is directly, I mean, this is directly addressed in a forthcoming episode with Emmett Penny, um, who's Nuke, um, Nuke Barbarian on Twitter. Um, so keep an, keep an uh, listen out for that, I suppose, because it deals with this issue directly. And the fact that at the moment, in Europe at least, we're confronting the um, first kind of green energy crunch because it's been, um, it, you know, uh, oddly enough, but nonetheless true, it has been a year with uh, less wind than usual. And therefore, uh, the wind turbine energy systems aren't providing as much energy as they need to. D despite uh, your best efforts, Phil. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> that, that burn is going to just give off some, some nuclear heat uh, as well. Yeah. Get some, I was calling some you a blowhard. I wasn't that. suggesting you were flatulent. Anyway... Um, so uh, also Red Smooth says wind turbines being everywhere is an absolute hideous future. It indicates that environmentalists no longer think about protecting nature. Um, I'm actually okay with that as it happens. I, that's not my issue. But anyway, we're going to move on because there's an interesting comment also about the female dating strategy that we discussed, uh, which is an article that Phil brought. Pavel Antonov says... Um, I share Phil's fascination with the female dating strategy community. However, I think he got caught by only one aspect of the phenomenon. I spent a bit of time browsing the principal subreddit uh, and, uh, and some other stuff online, and it's quite clear to me that this community contains a pretty violent strain of elitism and a lot of contempt for those deemed, quote unquote, low value males, which is a very large category in and out of which any potential partner can go at the drop of a hat. It goes beyond having stricter standards. One also cannot help but notice after looking through the comments and posts of given users that there's a large performative element to their interactions. I think a lot of them posting there is a coping mechanism. Phil, do you want to we, respond to that? Yeah, so Pavel makes some good points. I think there probably is a performative element to the interaction and that it is kind of, you know, coping. I mean, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing. I mean, I think that's what, you know, kind of um, that is partly the reason that people go onto these online forums in the first place. I'm not so sure I, you know, I detected as much of the elitism and contempt for so-called low-value males in the Reddit forum when I looked, though, you know, maybe maybe Pavel saw stuff that I didn't. I mean, so from the female dating strategy um, discussion, low-value males didn't mean somebody who, uh, you know, didn't, uh, didn't earn so much money, but it was meant in terms of their behavior and how far they were willing to respect um, the women that they were dating. And it seemed to me very clear that it wasn't a class-specific thing, at least in the discussions that I saw. Anyway, just to reiterate, I mean, it, I thought the main reason that I brought it to discuss was because it seemed to me very interesting um, and a, you know, like I men made the point at the time, uh, very ordinary women seeking to liberate themselves from what they took as an oppressive aspect of contemporary feminism um, with its um, indifference or celebration of pornography and effectively being, you know, acting in the interests of men. And this was the thing that was most important i thought about it more than the kind of the um you know the intents of the online forum it makes makes me think that you know you've got the female dating strategy you can have like a counter strategy i don't know if this is i don't want to imply this is what bavel was doing by going on the the subreddit but like you can if there is a strategy you can game that you can game that strategy you can have a counter strategy anyway just you know just throwing that out there there's a thing you could do if you know the strategy you can game the strategy don't you already have a girlfriend, George? And wouldn't that basically be uh, like a gonna... new kind, newly kind of upgraded form of um, the what was it called? The dating that uh, dating. What was it called? That guy. The the game. The game. Yeah, the misogynistic kind of dating strategy. Is that what you're advocating? No, I'm just saying that any strategy has 
you know has its weaknesses and okay. you can okay you know, okay if, well if let, let's park this let's park this because actually we have the episode about the incels we recorded and there's questions about that so we can carry on that discussion then Because for now, we have to turn to uh, the two episodes with Adam II's uh, Leopard Lockdown. This was uh, understandably, unsurprisingly, very popular. Uh, one comment saying this was one of the most engaged interviews with twos I've heard. His respect for your own work and prowess really shown through. Pretty cool. Uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Um, so Eli comments that uh, the way I'd resolve the paradox of massive financial interventions versus modest vaccination campaigns is neoliberalism ultimately prioritizes regulating social relations over regulating the underlying physical world. I think there's something to that. Um, he goes on to talk about Italy, and there's a couple of comments about Italy, about the potential uh, Italian exit from, from the euro and from the EU. And so I'll take these all together, and then we can discuss that issue. Um, so Eli continues, uh, I'll say this about Tuz's response, re Italy crashing out. These arguments of crashing out being the greater evil just uh, sound just like the arguments against Brexit and as well as those in favor of Hillary Clinton. Italy will crash out because that is the unstable, chaotic, perverse thing to do. And those are the times we live in now. Um, John O'Riordan says, Italy crashing out is supposedly bad, but then any attempt at asserting sovereignty supposedly doesn't matter anyway due to globality. Seems to me the only thing to do is to reestablish national sovereignty bit by bit. But in two's world, there seems to be only doom. Seems like a recipe for infinite technocracy. Uh, Andrea says, I'm glad that uh, Tuz understood how shitty it is to spend your 20s unemployed in Italy by staying here for a few weeks. And he uses a very different vocabulary when he talks with or writes for his technocrat friends instead of you guys. But I agree with him about Italy leaving the EU, because as much as I agree that the EU is co-responsible for the situation of Italy, uh, and it is very unlikely to be reformed, Italy is not the UK, nor Greece. Namely, we don't have our currency and we don't have a left-wing government with uh, with a one with a referendum we've won in our pockets, nor a manageable amount of money to deal uh, in terms of a continent. Um, the left is even more non-existent in Italy than it is in the UK or the US, uh, and that means that the millions of people below the social reproduction level today—that is, those who are having to reply on failing social safety nets and crumbling infrastructures—will immediately suffer. Uh, materially from crashing out of the EU. There is no left, no plan, and those in power in favor of leaving the EU are the disgusting Italian middle and lower bourgeoisie, not the big, in, not the big industrialists. Um, so if there is a way not to literally make poor people die because of, for example, the breakdown of the failing Italian public health system, I'll be happy. Sadly, the Italian bourgeoisie is really that disgusting. Crashing out would not be good in the short or medium term for the Italian left or working class Italians, as one could say for the UK, because more potential sovereignty wouldn't realistically mean anything for a very long time here, only more power for Italian entrepreneurs. Uh, he concludes just saying uh, that I really like the episode. And even if I hate Tuz's neglect of class, I always like to read and listen to him. Um, one more quite one more one more point about uh, the kind of Italy exit, Italy exit question, or Ushitali as I think it should be called, uh, um, about from Paul Brewer. Tuz makes a very important point in this series about the difficulty of decisions for actual policymakers. There are real human costs to policies, and the dislocations created by radical changes can be severe. Imagine if Syriza had Grexited. Uh, we would not now know the cost of remaining in the Eurozone, which is demonstrably not worse than the cure. 
But what forces might have come to the forefront of public antagonism towards that policy? Uh, meanwhile, in another conversation, Tude play out, played out a thought experiment of Bernie winning the nomination and the election. That plausibly would have sounded like a much darker timeline than the one we are in, given what we know of what followed a Biden victory. So, uh, guys, you want to take these questions on on uh, Italy? Yeah, I mean, I would stick by what I said, what I put to twos in the conversation that we had, which is that I still think that on the whole, there is no way to establish the world that he wants himself of more effective kind of global cooperation, which isn't rooted in democratic legitimacy. And that requires breaking down the the existing status quo institutions, um, given the fact that supranationalism in the EU is designed to be insulated from public input and from democratic oversight. And the cost would be severe. But I mean, and again, all of, you know, the issues raised by Andrea about the um, the fact that all you know this political space is monopolized by in his words the disgusting Italian bourgeoisie and so on those are all you know kind of self-fulfilling prophecies in a sense those are all claims in which um, once they're once you abandon that terrain um, then you are forced into the position of accepting indefinite austerity indefinite um, and indefinite technocracy and supranationalism and I mean, how many more years of that need to be experienced before it becomes decided that um, ra a radical restructuring of the of the status quo is needed? So it still seems to me the issue is um, those political options need to be constructed. So even if there is less of a left in Italy, even if there isn't a, a government with a popular referendum that it's won, even if there isn't a social base for it among the you know among the Italian populace at large, and those things need to be built because. It seems to me the status quo is ultimately untenable in Italy. Yeah, I mean, I would tend to agree with Phil on this. I think this, the idea, and this is kind of Andrea's conclusion, with a different balance of power, my opinion would be different, of course. Well, that will never happen. That will, that will like never happen unless there is the ability to make an argument that in favour of Italexit, which says that Italian people should make a, make decisions about about things in Italy, um, and that's you know it's essentially the same logic that you had around Brexit, which was like <clears throat> uh, Brexit would be good if and only if we had a left wing government in in charge. We don't, therefore, we're just going to have to to stick with with the shitty EU. And it's you know it maybe actually was um was a, a successful argument on the British left, and you know what 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 has that. What has that done to the British left? I mean, you know, the Labour Party is is proof that 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 direction doesn't really lead anywhere other than the grave. Um, but yeah, and I mean, not to not to sort of completely dismiss that. And I think I think it was a good. It was. A, I mean, obviously, I was not um, participating in the discussion, but I think it was a good a good kind of way that some of these disagreements or disputes kind of got got. Um, uh, concentrated in that that question around Italy. So the final set of, of comments um, uh, in relation to the twos episode, a uh, sensible captain commented that it was David Hume who showed that the showed the fallacy of deriving claims about what ought to be from what merely is. Maybe twos should read some Hume. Um, I suspect he probably has. Uh, with some good luck, he'll find a revolutionary subject, though I expect this is more a political strategy than a logical fallacy. Uh, Nathan Beasy replies to, to that, saying, in fairness to twos, much of the modern left is prone to deriving their analysis from what they think ought to be the case, irrespective of what the balance of political forces actually is at a given time. 
It's the fallacy of that it's the fallacy that Hume outlines, but in reverse. Uh, and sensible captain's repulse to this is that this is not what this is about, and I have nothing against people pointing out the divergence between the is and the ought. This is about the excruciatingly callous and cynical attitude of Tuzes and his ilk to pretend they have never heard about working class organization and resistance before. Um, I think that there's a huge amount of bad faith to that point made, um, precisely because one, I mean, it, it assumes to divine what Tuz actually is secretly thinking in his head. And secondly, um, it behooves us all to deal with these issues seriously um, rather than just point to uh, or, or kind of pre play pretend revolutionaries at a time when there obviously is no uh, like coherent working class subject. It does. It does. It, does it behoove us? <laughs> Indeed. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's, um, I'm not exactly sure what the, what the kind of the, the, the conclusion of this um, kind of argument would, would be. And if there's a, there's a possible sort of resolution um, between the kind of the sensible captain line and, and the two, the twos, the twos, the twosian um, line, but um, yeah. I guess the. Um, I, I mean, so what? What is sensible captains? Kind of. Well, I, th th I think they're saying here. that because two says that there is no revolutionary subject today. She's saying that the he therefore thinks that there shouldn't be a revolutionary subject today, which I think is uh, a, a leap. Uh, you know, I mean, oh, two's I, might two two's yeah, might be. I have I have to say I'm mystified by sensible captains' invocation of Hume in this context. Um, and also how, you know, bringing Hume into, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, this context of Marxism uh, just doesn't seem to me to work. I mean, the issue isn't, you know, ought, to, ought there to be, um, ought there to be a working class uh, revolution, revolutionary politics. The question is whether there is one and there isn't. So it seems to me very odd to um she's i mean it seems to me here sensible captain is engaging in their own kind of um uh, dabbling in utopianism so um Tuz's, Tuz's claim might be cynical and self-serving um but it seems to me nonetheless more brutally realist than the idea that we should because we would like there to be some kind of uh, radical reorganization of society that we need to uh, assume because we would like it that it that it must be the case. And that seems to me odd. And I can't see any other way in which to read the comment. Hmm. Um, so moving on, uh, we had organized the incels with Alex Gendler, uh, episode 215, which was a patrons only episode. Uh, quite a lot of comments about this. Uh, unsurprisingly, um, people do like talking about this stuff. Matthew Black, this is a really interesting argument. It raises a point that was pretty widespread in post-war anthropology, and I think became very unfashionable after Foucault that systems of power and authority, like patriarchy, are primarily symbolic. So you get these massive rituals of power that on some level are basically extremely elaborated mating displays. Hmm. Um, Blake wonders, how do the 68ers fit into this equation, simultaneously growing up in the era of post-war prosperity, but also being opposed to monogamy? Uh, Nathan Beasley replies to that, saying, I suppose if there was ever going to be a countercultural movement opposing monogamy, it was going to arise at the historical moment when the nuclear family was hegemonic. Um, I think that's correct, actually, that, that re response. I'm, I think, I don't think so. I think it's at the moment when the nuclear family is is breaking down. I think, actually, I think there's a, there's a stronger mm, movement against monogamy today than there was 
in in 68? Mm, I'm not sure about that. But I think they, the point is that the 68ers were talking about free love at a point when the family was hegemonic, but maybe was already showing the first signs of breakdown, which is a kind of, I guess, owl, owl of Minerva sort of moment there. Free love on the free love freeway. Thank you for that. Um, Continuing with these comments, John O'Riordan, if only 25% of men managed to pass on genes, then technically we are all descended from Chad Alphas. Uh, Red Shmoo replies to that, hard times create Chad Alphas, Chad Alphas create good times, good times create soy boys, and soy boys create hard times. So I suppose if that's true, we are at that latter stage of the hard times created by soy boys. Um, I'll leave it to listen. I think think that shows Red Shmoo to be be, um, a dialectician of, of considerable insight (laughs) i'm not joking i think it's a very good Uh, comment uh elias brown uh, so pushing this further was the revolutionary wave of the early 20th century caused by the mass politicization of incels matthew black replies to that saying there's a real research literature on how disaffected young men are bad for state stability i don't know how serious it is and there seems to be some questionable highly hyped studies in the media but it's certainly a theory that's out there Uh, Yeah, I'm going to come back to that in just a second. Uh, Pierre Paolo Tamburelli says, I would question the idealized picture of hunter-gatherers that emerges from this conversation. Also on this, an idealized notion of prehistorical times and hatred of metropolitan life, theater, and fashion was at the base of Rousseau's project. Uh, Was he the Ur-Incel? A proof of this might be that the internet platform of the Italian Movimento Cinque Stelle, uh, definitely an incel party, is called Rousseau. (laughs) I thought it was good. Um, And Lawrence Dorman, a sudden spike in dodgy puns. I mean, apart from the fact he had lots of sex. So, you know, I'm not sure he Did he? I I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Fun times in Geneva. Well, I mean, I think he's had something like five kids that he gave up for um, adoption. So, uh, use protection, uh, people. That's the conclusion. <laughs> I, think, I think calling the movement the five star five star movement and def- definitely an incel party is is funny. <laughs> and um, probably we should have included that, that in our book because we I write about know. five star quite a bit as a pure populist party, also an yeah. incel party. Huh, there you go. Uh, finally, Lawrence Dor- Dorman says a sudden spike in dodgy puns and jokes on this episode. Can do attitude was particularly bad. Uh, that's looking at you, George. I can only surmise that habitually Phil reigns you two in on that front. Uh, whereas Bernard Pirkel said can do attitude is exactly the type of content I come here for. That splits opinion, doesn't it? Um, uh, no, I think Lawrence Dorman also used an emoji of lying craft, of, sorry, of crying laughing after can do attitude was particularly bad. So if you remove these kind of details, um, Alex, then you will, you will give people an, an unfair picture. Mm. Um, as to the more serious comments on the, on the uh, history of incels, I, I, so let me just take one. I think there is a point there with uh, the, the question about, you know, a, a body of young men who have uh, maybe no purpose, whether they're unemployed or whatever, creating real insurrectionary come revolutionary pressures. And I think that's true. And I think it is worth reading, I think, history in, in light of that, that many human societies didn't know what to do with a lot of a lot of men, which is which is Alex Gendler's argument. Um, and perhaps we we are facing that today. I mean, you know, that there's that point made about Marxist capital being actually a book about unemployment. Uh, and there's something to that where, you know, to read the read social history or not just social history, but read all human history as a as a question of surplus populations and what to do with them, uh, I think is is kind of a fruitful way of looking at things. Yeah, I mean, I think it was I think it was a good a, a good discussion. And the 
I think one of the particularly good things about Alex's um, essay is that it kind of, I guess it flips the the starting point and says like, actually this whole thing is about excess, like excess men. What do you do with the fact that it's actually a very, like it is, it's a, it's a biological fact um, for what it's worth. There is a small proportion of, of men who who've passed down their, their, their genes. Um, and yeah, we're all descendants of, of Chad alphas. And what does that mean for them for the for a social structure that that um makes people uh, some people essentially surplus in fact we're all jews because uh, we've all been passed on levi's levi's genes but um ah jesus christ okay can do attitude that was that was pretty that was pretty um pretty good i, I like that one yeah i mean i i thought it was pretty poor, but I'm going to keep it in there because, you know, some people like that kind of thing and you got to throw a dog a bone. Uh, right. Last two episodes that we're going to discuss here in this alpha bonus bonus before we wrap up uh, the German election preview with Dominic Leuster, uh, Elias Brown, uh, who commented this, of course, uh, I guess when this episode came out, which is before the election, and we can now discuss it with the benefit of hindsight, both the SPD and the Greens have more or less all but excluded a red, red, green coalition, which he calls suggestively a Transnistrian coalition uh, in reference to the colors of the Transnistrian flag, uh, which is the coalition of uh, the Lynx Partei with uh, the Greens and the uh, SPD. Um, but that would be the main alternative to a traffic light uh, and would probably the least bad option. Well, we can now say that obviously that isn't an option and what is happening is indeed the traffic light coalition between uh, the Greens, the SPD and uh, the, uh, the, the FDP. Um, so John Gunther comments, and, and just to place it in context, I said in the introduction something about uh, the Canadian election being one of maybe a major election that's happened since, uh, you know, since the pandemic has kind of sort of ended. And, uh, you know, I'd saying that actually that probably doesn't count because no one cares about Canada. And anyway, that election was the biggest damn squib ever. Uh, they say that our Canadian election of less consequence than the German election. OK, not an opinion worth disagreeing with, but citing Berlusconi on Angela Merkel, not to mention the nature of the quote, major disappointment, guys. Grifter, pal of Gaddafi, Lukashenko, Netanyahu, Putin, sad sack, ifibophiliac, not sure what that word means, if anybody cares to enlighten me, uh, convicted fraudster, you know, just your dirty old man trope, small man syndrome, whining criminal walking around with an opinion of someone smart enough to be in the same room as this conniving lowlife and his peers and come away with whatever she wanted. You two asking, how could this possibly be? The most successful politician and leader of the most important country in the EU, a woman, a feminist, a 21st century paladin, because mother figure and womb-like hand gesture. Come on, boys, put on your grown-up pants and do better. In contrast to this major misstep, the discussion in general and your guests were as interesting and informative as usual. You didn't publish your guest name in the description, wish you would. Oh, we wish we we should do uh the the name is always in the title though um yeah i don't know what to say to that uh i, I two, two points uh, one one i wasn't part of this episode so you two have really let us down secondly i think it's an if if fibo filiac is um somebody who has an a sexual interest in like adolescent like mid-adolescence so like 19 uh, 15 to 19 year olds um, so I think describing Berlusconi as that is um, very accurate. So yeah, I mean, good it's, use of that word. I mean, it's an accurate characterization of um, Berlusconi. Um, but uh, I mean, I hope by now all listeners know, as we've made clear multiple times, he's our evil patron saint. 
Um, and so, you know, dis, uh, describing a list of his um, kind of uh, misdemeanors and flaws and everything else um, isn't doesn't take away from the fact that I think we correctly identified him as such an important political figure of the last 30 years. And I think also important, I mean, and this was cons this is consistently the problem with uh, Berlusconi, that he's consistent has been consistently underestimated. Um, the idea that he's merely kind of um, uh, depraved and um, stupid, I think is um, why, in partly why he has been yeah. such an influential figure. No, I think it's and, and it's more than that. It's more than that. So all of these these kind of um, criticisms of his personal life, in fact, these become politically. We've talked about this before, of course. They become politically salient because he gives people the the um, the license to, to to break the rules because he clearly he clearly does. He's not yeah. morally good. Um, but he's politically effective. And I think that is, you know, yeah. the all of that. And that means that you don't necessarily have to disagree with all of these criticisms of, of Berlusconi, but you do have to appreciate the political context and his efficiency and how he makes the um, the, the personal political, as it, as it, as it were, also, in a very different way. But I think also, I mean, it was voters being... Uh, disgusted by attempts to moral, you know, the moralizing opposition to him. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you know, that was understandable. So, I mean, you know, I don't, um, it's not as if we're going to disagree with the characterization. No, and, and, and yeah. And obviously our intent wasn't just to parrot his sexist comment as if it was funny, whatever. It was just a yeah, bit of an aside. But, it but wasn't point... to endorse it, but it was to capture something about how Angela Merkel was seen by other European leaders. And despite that, has nonetheless been um, precisely been such a you know such an effective and enduring, or effective I suppose in I mean in the kind of narrow tech technocratic sense, but enduring political leader in European politics. So uh, another comment on this uh, from Casey Chu, Casey Cho, excuse me. Interestingly, the Greens have arguably become the most hawkish party on Russia and China now, due to their liberal internationalist ideals as well as their opposition to natural gas, etc. That the more realist-oriented conservatives support. I'm sorry, I maybe read that in a way that it didn't make the uh, syntax much sense. But the point is that the Greens are the most hawkish party, and I think that's absolutely true. Um, Blake says they should honestly do an episode. I think they, meaning us, uh, should do an episode on Daniel Cohn-Bendy and the pedophilia rabbit hole of the German Greens. I'm, um, I wasn't aware of any uh, pedophilia rabbit hole, but uh, maybe do something you, on green know? parties and why they're all so crap is it might be interesting. Um, so uh, and and then uh, just one comment about the post-election episode, which we did with uh, Wolfgang Strick. Uh, people bigging me up for correct uh, for pronouncing it correctly and i uh, take that as a personal point of pride so thank you uh this was unsurprisingly a very popular episode as well just one comment though uh, mark valles says i just wonder if holding up an anti-nato position is still that smart to have and not a weird leftover from the cold war uh no i we should so absolutely mystified. remain anti-nato i was so mystified by this it seems to me it's the opposite surely yeah surely you know the case for nato was stronger i mean i can understand the case for nato even if i would have disagreed i can understand the case for nato in the cold war Whereas now it just seems to me utterly insensible to maintain the North Atlantic Treaty Organization when there is no risk of Russia marching west towards, you know, I mean, they could barely drag their forces to Tbilisi in 2008. The idea that they're going to overrun the continent and therefore we need NATO is, you know, it's a war well, machine for the forever war look, in Afghanistan. You're going to look very foolish 
if if it does come to pass but no i i, I think you're i think you're quite correct Yes, absolutely. Especially because they need that tasty Russian gas because they're not building nuclear power plants. Uh, finally, two seventeen. Tasty gas. <laughs> no, is the gas tasty. Well, uh, it's tasty pint of Gazprom, as uh, as people say when watching the Champions League. The <laughs> sponsor of the Champions. League. It's it's yeah, an enjoy. People will get. Some people will get that. Many people won't. We'll just move on. Uh, episode two seventeen, Reading Club, uh, the one on the. Roots of intersectionality being in Stalinism, which is Michael McNair's piece we discussed. Um, Luke Thibault says, the point made was that in the abandonment of class independence uh, or the rank and file via the popular front strategy, de-radicalized the workers' movement to secure reforms and uh, Central Committee foreign policies at the cost of a serious Labour Party and any credibility with the rank and file against communist forces. Furthermore, subordinating workers' struggles to political alliances with elites meant they started allying with black elites, small business owners, professionals, politicians, and so on. Uh, The state, National Labor Relations Board, and white middle-class liberals in the South, instead of committing to militant rank-and-file organizing as they had previously. That tracks with uh, Adolf Reed's contemporary critique of identity politics, which McNair cites. So what's the upshot? I don't think Jesse Jackson's insurgent rainbow coalition is the problem, so much as a rainbow-fied class coalitions are. I mean, I think I agree with what uh, the listener is saying here. I don't really, I don't really see if they're taking issue with what we said. If they're finessing it or add, I mean, they're adding to it certainly. Um, but I think the, I mean, you know, I think the Rainbow Coalition grows out of rainbow, rainbowified class coalitions. I mean, that's the point, right? It's a political strategy which kind of um, simply ratifies the previous sequence of deals you know effectively cross-class deals that were made in an earlier in an earlier era i think that's what mcnair was getting at and that's what we were trying or at least what i was trying to get at in the discussion as well yeah i mean i think rainbow coalitions if you take that to mean you know a coalition of different organizations including you know in, in the in the centerpiece of that labor but also with various other work working class organizations community organizations and so on yeah, fair enough. But I think rainbow coalitions, as that term has been used, has always, to a certain extent, included cross-class, cross-class organizations and cross-class coalitions. Yeah. Well, it's always been a... an identity politics model, right? Yeah, I have a problem with the with the term rainbow coalition because, like, it's not really a coalition. It's a it's a set of separate colors. You want if you were, if it was a true coalition, then it would be brown because all the colors would be would be mixed together. I think if you, in general, though, if you have to like, if you have to um, um, qualify the class bit, then it's not, it's not, it's, there's a big problem. I think it's either, it's either a class, not even a coalition. It's either a class project. A coalition is bringing outside bits and you don't need any outside bits. You just need the class bit. So that's my not very insightful, rather crude um yeah. I mean, I guess I guess the only thing you could say is that there might be kind of quote unquote identity organization based in certain communities, which are resolutely working class organizations, but they re- represent like whatever Italian workers, for example. Um, but I think that always will tend towards a certain sectionalism because it reinforces and reifies those those kind of identity groups, even if they're just exclusively working class ones, because they group those people around identity terms rather than class interests. Um, I don't think we have that anything like else. The to... red, that could be like the red and the white and the green of the Rainbow Coalition. Yes, which all turns uh, get... blue when you mix them together. Anyway, 
That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Any- and we're, we're, we're really tailing out here. So we're going to end this here. Uh, we will deal with all things relating to the Generation series. Okay, Boonger, once the entirety of it is out, which it isn't now as we're recording this, but it will be by the time you're hearing this. But that's the reason why we haven't dealt with any of those comments. Also, we would like to encourage listeners to tell us what they thought about it. It's the first time we do uh, a series kind of as, as produced as that is. And so we're interested in your comments, what you liked about it, what you disliked about it, uh, because we will do more of them in the future. And they may take slightly different form depending on uh, depending on what feedback we get. So we'd like to hear from you. But we'll leave that here. And we'll be back with another one of these, uh, probably one more of these before the year is out. So do keep sending in your questions, comments, and criticisms, uh, wherever you like to send them. Um, though we generally try to source them from, from the Patreon uh, to deal with exclusively patron uh, comments. So thank you for that. And uh, we'll see you again very soon. Bye-bye. Thank you.